Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Have you heard about the companies who are paying people to sleep? Have you heard about this? I recently read a book called Why We Sleep. It's the most fascinating book I've read all year long. Uh, I always was a fan of sleep. I hope you are a fan of sleep as well. But I never knew how important it was for just about everything in life. Sleep has a profound effect on our physical health. Consistently getting uh, less than six hours of sleep increases your risk of heart disease by 45%. If you got less than six hours of sleep last night, you are five times more likely to have a heart attack today. Uh, Too little sleep weakens your immune system and increases your risk of cancer and Alzheimer's. It makes it harder to lose weight if you're on a diet. It's harder to regulate your blood sugar. It just, the list goes on. And sleep isn't just good for your body, it's good for your mind as well. If you're trying to learn something new, if you study it today and you don't get a good night's sleep tonight, it won't stick tomorrow. Your your creativity is lessened when you have too little sleep. Your problem problem solving is lessened. If you have 10 nights in a row of six hours of sleep, cognitively speaking, it's the same as being legally drunk. Sleep improves your emotional and relational health. Uh, When you sleep, you actually process the experiences of the day. Uh, Dreams are really important. If you're processing traumatic or painful events, you need to have time in dreams. If you get less than seven hours of sleep at night, you'll actually have a harder time recognizing the expressions on other people's faces, and you'll misinterpret interactions you have. You'll be quicker to get angry and respond with emotion in tense situations. And the bottom line is this, sleep improves almost everything you do. And the evidence for this is so strong that some workplaces have begun offering financial incentives. They're giving bonuses to people who consistently log seven hours of sleep or more. And because they know this is one of the best ways to improve workplace performance if you just get a good night's sleep. Now, I found this really ironic because when you think about what causes you to lose sleep, for a lot of us, it's workplace stress. When you wake up in the middle of the night and your mind is racing, what are you thinking about? For most of us, at the top of the list is work. This is the second week in our series, A Job Well Done. We are studying the book of Daniel to get some wisdom about how to approach our own work life. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Daniel chapter two. Uh, We're gonna be studying uh, an incident here. We're gonna be looking at two different people and we're gonna be asking the question, what kept them up at night? And from that, we're gonna learn how to respond to our own workplace stress. We're gonna start with Daniel and what kept him up at night. What kept him up was the stress of overwhelming demands, overwhelming demands. Let me give you background for this story. So Israel has been invaded by the superpower of the day, which is Babylon. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has carted off all of the best and brightest in Israel and brought them into the city of Babylon. He's gonna indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture and put them to work in his government. And Daniel and his friends are part of this group. So they've been brought to Babylon and given a job, and it's kind of a strange job because it's a combination of kind of half slavery, half royalty. Daniel doesn't have a choice in what he does. Uh, His days are dictated to him, but he also is serving the king, which brings a lot of access to power and privilege. But at the same time, the king could kill him for just looking at him wrong. So there's that. Well, one night, the king has a nightmare, and this is where it begins in Daniel chapter 2. It says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he couldn't sleep. 
So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. Now, in the ancient world, everybody believed that the gods could speak to people in dreams and that often the dreams, especially of kings, were a window into what might happen in the future. And so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and summons his advisors. And just as a side note, uh, in some translations of the Bible, in that list, that one of the words gets translated as magi or wise men. So yes, this is the same uh, group of people that 400 years later had some of them come and visit the infant Jesus and bring gifts. You hear about that at Christmas time. Well, he, Nebuchadnezzar summons these advisors and he says, tell me what the dream means. And so the magi, they say to him, well, sure, why don't you tell us what the dream is? And Nebuchadnezzar says, uh-uh, no, you tell me what the dream is. And the Magi laugh. They say, oh, that's a great joke, Nebuchadnezzar. You're such a funny guy. And he says, no, I'm serious. I want you to tell me what I dreamed without me telling you what it is. Because if I just tell you the dream, you're going to make something up. You're going to tell me what you think I want to hear. And I won't know for sure if you really know what you're talking about. And this one seems too important. So I'm going to have you tell me the dream. And if you can do that, then I'll trust you to interpret the dream and know that it's accurate. Oh, and by the way, if you can't do it, I'm going to kill you all. Now, I realize this is an extreme situation. And on the outside, you will probably not face something like this in your workplace. But on the inside, I imagine that many of you have had that same feeling of panic that the Magi probably had. Your, your boss is breathing down your neck and she's given you an assignment that you know you don't have time to accomplish. You've been told you've got to switch from remote learning to in-person learning and then from in-person learning to remote learning and back and forth. The budget you've been given for the project is not enough to do what you need to accomplish. You've been asked to do something that's beyond your, your skill or your experience. And you are inside thinking, I cannot pull this off. This is impossible. In your head, you're, you're, you're thinking, the, the, what am I going to do? The, the stakes are too high. I don't know what I'm doing. I am going to fail and the consequences are dire. My family loves to play games. We own a ton of different games. But there's one game that we have that I don't usually want to play. It's a game called Castle Panic. Castle Panic. Uh, the way it works is you've got this castle that you're trying to defend. And there is this army of monsters that surrounds it. And every turn, the monsters, the trolls and goblins or whatever, they get closer and closer. And so they finally get to your castle and bash down the walls and destroy it. And so what you're trying to do is every turn, you, you do something to try and you know, kill off one of the monsters and get rid of them. But after every turn, more monsters get added to the army. And so I, I, after playing this a few times, I was like, why don't I enjoy this game? And I realized it was this. It's because it feels like checking my email. And no matter how many of these things I kill, they just keep coming, you know? That's how work feels a lot of the time. The task list keeps getting longer and longer, but your ability to keep up keeps going down and down. What do we do when we face overwhelming demands? Now, obviously, sometimes when you face a new challenge, it's an opportunity to grow. You know, you learn a new skill, you deploy a new strategy, you put in some extra time, you work harder, you work smarter, and the challenges become an opportunity for improvement. That's really great. But sometimes it's beyond just you being able to adapt to the new situation. When that happens, a good place to start is actually doing what these advisors, these magi, uh, did with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, look at what it says in verse 10. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods 
and they do not live among humans. They, they say to him, they say, this is, this is an impossible task. We are not divine. We are not gods. We are human beings, and we simply cannot do this. When we are faced with overwhelming demands, this is the first thing we should do. We should acknowledge our limits. You need to acknowledge your limits. I have this app on my phone. It's called Questions in a Box, and it's basically it generates conversation starters. And my kids love to do this at dinner time. So the other day we were doing kind of going around the table answering a question. And it was the classic question, if you could have one superpower, what superpower would you want? So my daughters, both of them said the same thing. They said, we would want to be able to turn into animals. You know, we could become anything we wanted, and, but we keep our human brain. So we would, you know, not become a mouse and sort of get stuck there and never figure out how to become a human again or whatever. My son, he said he wanted to be able to fly, but he kind of debated because he said, could I be able to drive a crane? And I didn't want to tell a four-year-old, like, actually, that's not a superpower. You might actually be able to do that because to him, it's like, that's awesome if I could drive a crane. For me, my, the first thing that came to mind was I'd like to be able to stop time. You know, like in Saved by the Bell, Zach Morris, where it's like time out, and then he can make a snarky comment to the camera or whatever. Um, I would want to be able to do this so that when things are overwhelming, when I've got more to do than I can get done, I could pause the world around me and take as much time as I needed to get caught up on my to-do list. Now, I feel like that's a very like, adult, boring kind of answer, uh, but I would also settle for being able to be in more than one place at one time. That would help me get some work done, or always being able to remember people's names. That would be great, wouldn't it? When work is overwhelming, it tempts us to try and be superhuman. We try to stretch ourselves beyond what's realistic or healthy or wise. And this is one of the reasons so many of us work too many hours, and we don't take vacation time, we can't put down our phones. We're trying to be more than we actually are, to go beyond our limits. But it turns out we are not superheroes. We are not gods. And there's something really, really healthy about being able to say that, acknowledging we can only do so much. And sometimes what that means is setting boundaries. I think first and foremost, it means taking a Sabbath. What I mean by that is setting aside a day simply to rest and recenter on what's important, refocus on God. This is deep biblical wisdom. Boundaries also mean setting time on when work starts and when work ends in your day. And sometimes that seems really obvious, but a lot of us, it's surprising how much it bleeds into everything that we do. This means not checking email the first thing you do when you wake up. There are a whole lot of people, when they roll over and they grab their phone, the first thing they do is see what their messages are. Personally, I had to turn off alerts for my email app so that I wasn't all, all the time being told how many new messages were in there. I actually turned off that little, you know, the notification icon that says the number of like, here's how many messages you have unread. Uh, I didn't want to see that except when I was checking email so that I'm checking email when I'm checking email and it's not intruding into the rest of my life. Having boundaries means saying no to things that you could do, but you don't have to do. It means delegating things. It means having honest conversations with your boss or your coworkers that what they're asking you to do is beyond what you have capacity to do. It means asking for help when you don't know, you know how to do something. A lot of people, they think that if I ask for help for something, if I admit that I don't know how to do something, I'll lose respect in the eyes of other people. But it turns out the opposite is actually true. That when you ask for help, you come across as a learner, as someone who's willing to grow. And the, the real way to lose credibility with people is to pretend you know what you're doing and then not be able to follow through. Now, when I talk about boundaries, I'm not talking about being lazy or avoiding hard work. The opposite, in fact. We want to be able to work hard on the right things. It's sort of the equivalent of having a budget for your money. 
You, you have limited time and energy and skills and you need to deploy them where they're gonna be most effective and you need to avoid overspending. Because just like with credit cards, if you try to pay for work right now with something you don't have, you will end up paying for it in the future. But knowing your limits is not just a matter of being productive or sort of self-care. It's also a spiritual statement. It is a theological statement. It is saying, I am a creature, not the creator. God is God, so I don't have to be. And so as your pastor, let me give you permission. You are allowed to be a human being. You are allowed to be a person in one place at one time and acknowledge your limits. Now, unfortunately, as we see in this passage, sometimes acknowledging your limits doesn't always relieve the stress. In this situation, the Magi, they say to Nebuchadnezzar, that's impossible, and Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't care. If you can't tell me the dream, you're fired, and by fired, I mean dead. And so sometimes you can't escape the overwhelming demands. You can't convince your boss that it's unreasonable. You can't find someone who can lend a hand. You can't just quit your job. You need the paycheck. And so this is where Daniel actually goes a step beyond the other magi, the other advisors. When Daniel hears about the king's orders, he says, no, that's impossible. I can't actually do that. But then this is what he does in verse 17. It says, then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel not only acknowledges his limits, but then he takes his overwhelming demands and he puts them in God's hands. He puts it in God's hands. Now, this might come across as maybe trite or just kind of over-spiritual, but we need to be praying about our work. Ask yourself the question, when was the last time you prayed about work? Now, I know we just did that a little bit earlier in the service, so a few minutes ago, you probably prayed about your work, but I mean, even beyond that, for a lot of us, we kind of live a TV dinner, TV dinner tray kind of life. We've got everything you know, in compartments, different areas. We've got you know, family over here, and work over here, and fun over here, and God over here, and they never touch each other. They're all divided. And so when we're at work, we never think to bring in the spiritual things and actually pray about what we're doing. Now, a lot of us, we might pray about a work situation when it gets really, really bad, but it's important for us to have a regular habit of the ordinary challenges we face, to be praying about those every day. So what do you need to pray for? Do you need to pray for the project that you're not sure you can get done on time? Or the tense relationship with a coworker? Or, or your sore muscles and aching back? Or the trigonometry test you have coming up? Or the declining sales numbers? Or the new person you need to hire? Do you need to pray about potty training? or the student that you can't motivate? What is it that you need to pray about? This is actually one of the things that you can do when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're thinking about work. Don't just sit there and kind of go through the loop again and again and again. Actually start praying about it. Put it in God's hands. You might even want to make this part of your end of the day routine. So this is what I do when I, I get done with work. I actually stop and I pray. I say, God, I'm stopping now. I actually say that. What got done today will have to be enough. I'm putting it in your hands until I, you want me to do something more tomorrow. I trust you with my work. You might need to do this at the end of the day when you go to bed. When I lay down at night, kind of when the lights are out and my head's on the pillow, I will often pray this prayer. I'll say, God, thank you for this moment of grace. Right now, no one is asking me to do anything. No one is evaluating me. There are no demands on me right now, but I simply can be in your presence. Thank you for this rest. Thank you that right now, even while I sleep tonight, 
Everything that's going on is in your hands as it always is. But this isn't just important for you to be doing personally. This isn't just something for you individually to pray about. This is something you need to bring the people around you into, to ask other people to pray about. So Daniel, he goes to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, maybe you don't recognize those names. You might recognize these people by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny, if you are a child in a youth group of a similar age to me, okay? Do you have people that you share your work stress with? When was the last time you asked your spouse or your siblings or your parents to pray for something that, that's on your plate? Do you, do you share your work stresses with your community group or your accountability partner? Ask them to pray. Is there another Christ follower at work that you can say, hey, can we pray together about this? Maybe during a break or after work is done. Do not bear the burden alone. Now, if you need prayer for a work situation right now and you're thinking, I don't know who to ask, uh, you can actually text us, text the, pray to the number that's on the screen because as a church, we love to pray for people. We love to pray for situations, whether they're big or small. And if you do that, someone will get in touch with you today to pray about your situation. We also have a ministry of our church where we will actually send staff from our church to your workplace to pray for uh, where you work. So if you are a business owner or you uh, work in a role where you actually can give permission for us to come into your workplace and pray for the people you work with and for the business that you're doing and uh, for your own work, we would love to do that. Uh, Larry Stratton, our generosity pastor, he coordinates this. You can get in touch with Larry uh, and he will get together a group of people and we will come and we will pray for you. We love to be able to do that. Now, when you start to pray about work situations, a couple of things happen. First of all, it takes the, uh, the burden off of your shoulders. It doesn't take away all the stress. The situation, uh, you know, it may still be difficult and tense, but it takes the edge off of it. You don't have to carry all of the weight because you know the, the vast majority of it is in God's hands. But it's not just something that changes your mindset, your attitude about it. When you pray, God's power actually works in circumstances. He changes situations. He brings his resources to bear on what you're, you ask about. And so in Daniel's situation, God answers prayer in a pretty dramatic way. Uh, look in verse 19. It says, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. So Daniel is up at night praying about this situation. God actually shows him in a vision. This is what the king dreamt. And then Daniel responds with great joy. He's thrilled about this. And he begins to praise God. And so in verse 20, it says this. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank, thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. You notice where the emphasis is here? Who did all the work in this situation? God revealed deep and hidden things. God gave wisdom. God gave power. God made known the dream. It is really important not to tell the story of your successes as if you are the hero. God is the one who provides everything we use, every skill that we have, every opportunity you get, every resource, every uh, bit of intelligence and energy you put uh, to work on, on your, your project. It all comes from God. Your work achievements are a gift that you have not earned and do not deserve. And so when you recognize that all of it is in his hands, you put it in his hands, it does in incredible things for your stress when you face overwhelming demands. Here's the second kind of stress that we face. 
Uh, the stress is the stress that Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing here. It is the stress of fragile success. Fragile success. So the mystery that kicks off the whole story here in Daniel 2 is what is Nebuchadnezzar's dream? And why is Nebuchadnezzar so troubled by this? He's so troubled by it that he'd be willing to execute his advisors if he can't figure out. He can't sleep at night. It's so disturbing to him. And when Daniel actually describes the dream, we find out what it was that troubled Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel describes the dream and what Nebuchadnezzar is seeing is this gigantic statue, the size of a building. And the statue is made of four metals. So at the very top is a head of gold and the chest is made of silver and the thighs are made of bronze and the legs are made of, made of iron kind of going down into feet of clay. And so there's this statue and then out of nowhere, this stone comes flying in and hits the statue at its feet and the statue kind of explodes, kind of turns to dust and gets blown away in the wind. But then that stone is still sitting there and the stone begins to grow and grow and grow till it becomes a mountain and the mountain keeps growing and growing until it fills the entire world. It's a very weird dream as dreams tend to be. Now, my guess is that Nebuchadnezzar, even though he claims to not know what this dream means, he probably picked up on the vibe of the whole thing. I mean, think about it. A rock smashing into a statue, the kind of thing that a king might make to honor his own reign, his own empire, doesn't sound good for Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel's interpretation of the dream confirms Nebuchadnezzar's hunch. So the four different metals, Daniel says, they represent four different empires. So the, the head of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar's empire, the Babylonian empire. The silver part, the, the chest, it represents the empire that's gonna come after Babylon, Persia. The bronze represents the empire of Greece when Alexander the Great comes in and conquers Persia. And the iron legs represents Rome. And so these are empires that are gonna succeed each other over the eras. And at this point, the dream is kind of mixed news for Nebuchadnezzar. So he's happy to hear that he's the head, you know, to win the gold medal in the whole like world conquering tyrant competition is kind of a, you know, it's an honor, you know, it's nice to hear that. But the fact that his empire is going to be replaced and then replaced again and then replaced again, you know what that means? It means everything he worked on will not last. Everything he built, this powerful, wealthy, influential kingdom in one generation is going to be gone. And then, when all of those empires pass away, at the very end, they are not going to be there. They are going to be replaced by this stone that becomes this mountain. And Daniel actually interprets what this means. He says, it represents the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus kicked off when he showed up. Look at verse 44. It says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. So it turns out Nebuchadnezzar's life work will not last. It turns out that his success is far more fragile than he wanted to admit. And this thought for many of us causes a lot of stress. You, you started a company, you led a team, you worked your way up the ladder. You established a process or a policy. You wrote a curriculum. You designed a brand. You built a building. You passed a law. You composed a song. Whatever it is that you've built or created or worked on or given yourself to, it will not only come to an end, but it will disappear and be forgotten. And it's not just that somewhere in the hope, scope of history that, that it'll go away. This could actually happen in your lifetime. All it takes is a change in the market 
an illness, a lawsuit, a downsizing, a bad decision, a new technology, a global pandemic, and the career you've built could be upended. And the threat here is not simply, will I have a job, will I be able to pay the bills? The threat cuts much deeper. It cuts to our sense of self, our our identity. I mean, have you ever thought about the weirdness of having a resume? Okay, so we got this piece of paper that in a you know, page or two lists off the accomplishments we have so that we can tell someone who we are. If you took a time machine back 150 years, and you met your great-great-grandparents, and you said, can I see your resume? They would look at you funny. They'd be like, what are you talking? A list of my accomplishments? That's strange. Uh, resumes weren't used uh, widely until the 1900s, and they, weren't, they didn't become standard until the 1950s. This is a relatively new thing in history. Prior to that, you know who kept lists of their accomplishments? Kings, rulers, that's it. We find these inscriptions buried all over of you know, lists of battles won and cities conquered and you know, buildings built and wealth amassed and all of these things. Why would kings make lists of their accomplishments? To prove to the world their legacy, their success, that they left a mark on the world. It's a way to say, I'm really somebody, don't forget me. In the old days, you know how you knew what your job was? You did what your parents did, right? So you figured out what you did for work because of who you were. We have reversed that in the modern world. We figure out who we are based on what we do for work. And so like King Nebuchadnezzar, when we realize the things we're working on are fragile, it rattles us. It touches our sense of self. This is how so many of us become workaholics because we're looking to our work success to tell us our value. Work becomes the defining reality of who we are. And in the language of the Bible, work becomes an idol, becomes something we worship, something we give ourselves to, something we sacrifice for. Probably the best book I've read on faith and work is Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. I highly recommend it. This is what he says about this. He says, work is not all there is to life. You won't have a meaningful life without work, but you cannot say that your work is the meaning of your life. If you make any work the purpose of your life, even if that work is church ministry, you create an idol that rivals God. Your relationship with God is the most important foundation for your life. And indeed, it keeps all of the other factors, work, friendships and family, leisure and pleasure, from becoming so important to you that they become addicting and distorted. If we look to our work to do for us what only God can do, it becomes addicting and distorted. How do you know if you've done this, if you're headed down this path? Let let me ask you a few questions that might get to the root of it. Are you riding the emotional roller coaster? So when you're succeeding in work, you feel really good about your life, but when you're failing, you're crushed. Every outcome at work is a verdict on you as a person. When that is happening, it may be that work is becoming an idol. Another question, are you pushing your work stress off onto other people? And think about Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors. He takes the anxiety, the insecurity he's feeling about his legacy and the longevity of what he's built, and he makes sure the people who work for him feel just as threatened by that as he does. So think about yourself. Are you always kind of just on the edge of anger at work? Are you demanding? Are you impatient with people? Uh, When people do something, whether it's your family or people you work with, that impedes your, your work success, they get in the way of something you think is gonna be important, how do you react to them? Do you respond to questions as if they're personal attacks? Do you take the mistakes of others at work as if they were personal letdowns, that they did this against you? If that's the case, it might be that you're looking to work to do more for you than it really should. Another question, 
Do you use work as an excuse to bend the rules, to not do things you know you should do or do things you know you shouldn't do? A starving person will steal food to survive because if the choice is either keep the rules or die, survival wins. If succeeding at work feels like a life or death matter to you, then you are far more willing to break rules, to compromise your standards, to sell your soul. Why? Because work success feels like a necessity, like you can't live without it. And if that's the case, you've got to ask the question, has this become a God? Has this become an idol in my life? Now, here's the paradox with all of this. When we put work at the center of our life, it kills us. When it becomes the source that we're drawing from, it, it, it depletes us physically, emotionally, relationally. It will suck you dry. And yet, when you put God at the center and work finds its natural place in orbit around God, that's when it actually becomes something that can be rewarding and meaningful and, yes, even enjoyable. How do you make that happen? One way to begin is by looking at your work from a kingdom perspective. So remember that rock that destroyed Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Uh, Daniel says it represents the kingdom of God, God's eternal kingdom. Now, this is God's plan for the world. This is where history is headed. A lot of people think that what God is planning to do is to rescue a whole bunch of people and whisk them away to some uh, distant spiritual dimension off beyond the clouds. But what God's plan actually is, is to bring his kingdom to earth. He's gonna renew the world and bring his kingdom here and human life will continue as it was meant to with God at the center, with Jesus on the throne, with everything made whole and put right and we will no longer experience suffering or death or evil. Work will no longer be cursed. It will no longer be infested with sin and here's what this means. It means there's a whole lot of the things that we do in this life that will not make it into that world. They will stop here and God will say, this is not coming along. But there actually is a whole lot of things that happen here that God will actually bring into the new world, including things like our work. But he will purify it from the taint of sin. Uh, It means that some of what we're doing will not pass away. It will be preserved, purified, transformed in the new world. Tim Keller, again, he comments on this. He says, if there is no God, then even our very best work in this life will not make a lasting difference. But if the God of the Bible exists, And there is a true reality beneath and behind this one. And this life is not the only life. Then every every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. That is what the Christian faith promises. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That's a quote from 1 Corinthians. And, And Keller gives examples of what he means by this. He says, let's say you work in city government and you invest your life into improving the town that you live in. And you try to make it the, the, the best place it can be. At the end of your life, there will be things that you wish you could have done. There will be things that, that did not fulfill the vision you had. But you can know this, that one day a city is coming, the new Jerusalem, in which all that your work was pointing to will actually be accomplished. Let's say you're a lawyer. You work your whole life to help people find justice in their situations. And you might do some great things, but at the end, you can always realize that it wasn't enough. Perfect justice was never achieved, and you might feel discouraged by that. But you can know there will be a day when the righteous judge arrives and puts everything right the way it was meant to be. If you're an artist or a musician, you create as much beauty as you can, but it will always fall short of what you wish you could express. But a world of perfect beauty is coming. It will be here. If you're a doctor, no matter how much health you bring into this life, death always catches up. But there will be a day when death is no more and all the healing you've worked for will become a reality. 
how does working with the kingdom in mind actually address the stress of fragile success? Two different things. If you work with the kingdom in mind, you will never make too much of your work, no matter how significant it looks. You won't invest all your hope and your identity and your work success. It doesn't matter what title you have, what accolades you receive, what legacy you leave, you know it might turn out to just be the head of gold. It looks good right now, but eventually it will be crushed and it will blow away in the wind. So you hold it loosely. But at the same time, if you have the kingdom in mind, you will, not, you will never make too little of your work, no matter how insignificant it looks. You will never make too little of your work, no matter how insignificant it works. When your work goes unrecognized, or what you accomplish falls short of what you dream, if you feel like you're stuck in a dead-end position, when no one is impressed with what you tell, when you tell them what you do, you remember that that kingdom mountain that filled the whole world, it started off as a little rock. And Jesus actually tells a parable about this. He says that at the final judgment, there are gonna be some people who the king is gonna reward. And they're gonna say, what are you even talking about? What do we do for you? When, when did we do something to serve you? They, they won't realize what they've done. And, and the king will respond. He'll, he'll, he'll say, when you uh, saw me and I was hungry, you fed me. When, when you, uh, you saw me thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When you gave me clothes, when you saw me naked, you gave me clothes. When I was in prison, you visited me. He says, whatever you've done for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it for me. When you're serving someone else, even if it was a forgettable act of service, it would be credited as service to the king. And so I think this is gonna happen with some of our ordinary work. Our work done in love and service for others seeking kingdom priorities is gonna be recognized as service to King Jesus. He is gonna look some of us in the eye and he's gonna say this, when my car broke down, you fixed my transmission. When I was having a bad day, you brought out free chips and guac. I really do think that Jesus likes guacamole. I think, I think that's true. When I was in the dementia ward, you fed me and bathed me and clothed me. When I needed a job, you hired me. When I needed a home, you helped me find one I could actually afford. When I needed to go back to work, you watched my kids. When I started a business, you gave me the loan. When I was the first in my family to go to college, you helped me fill out the application. When anxiety was dominating my life, you were my counselor. When my pipe burst, you made sure the insurance money was enough to get me back on my feet. When I had a learning disability, you adapted your teaching style so I could thrive. Whatever acts of love you do in your work, no matter how small they may seem in the moment, they will be seen as acts of service to Christ the King and eternally significant in his kingdom. And that kind of success is never fragile. Let's pray. King Jesus, we want our work to be service to you. We want our work to be eternally significant. We want our work to matter. God, we pray that you would take all the stress, the anxiety, the fear that we have that's generated by our workplace. God, give us the ability to put those things into your hands. Pray that even this week that you would help us in moments when we feel overwhelmed to cry out to you, to not simply uh, try to work it out on our own, but that we would lean on you. God, I pray that in our situations you would show up in ways so we can point to it and say, that was God, not me. God, you deserve the credit. For all the success that we have, it all comes from you, and we are so thankful that it doesn't depend on us. We pray this in your name. Amen.